Hi there. You're listening to Development Unplugged, hosted by the Canadian Council for International Cooperation. Here we are providing a platform for cutting-edge thinking and debate on global issues and international cooperation. Whether you're a social sciences major, a journalist in pursuit of answers, a program officer brainstorming on that next project, or the CEO of a nonprofit, this is your source for all things international cooperation. I'm your host, Nick Moyer. In this special series of four podcasts produced with the support of Crestview Strategy, one of Canada's fastest growing public affairs agencies, we explore where Canada stands at the nexus of international affairs and examine the potential for a more ambitious and comprehensive Canadian foreign policy. In this particular episode, we're talking about the new shared reality that climate change is bringing with respect to international development. And joining us to explore current trends and shifting global landscapes in this area, uh, help address Canada's internal tensions and help us unpack those and introduce some ideas for a path forward to deal with climate change at the intersection of international development are Catherine Abreu, the Executive Director of the Climate Action Network, and Stephen Cornish, the President and CEO of the David Suzuki Foundation. Welcome to you both. Thanks for having us. This is great. Thanks so much for having us. Well, it's wonderful to speak to you. Um, You know, climate change is in the news all the time. I think we see it all around us. It's part of the public discourse in a way we haven't seen before. I just look at the recent Australian fires that continue. You know, we see, it seems like every uh, next week we're, we're seeing a, a biggest or worst climate event somewhere. Um, obviously, I think for our, for our listeners, we know that addressing climate change is integral to achieving the UN Sustainable Development Goals. You know, it seems like finally, perhaps, uh, in some places anyway, it's becoming a policy priority. And we're seeing that sort of challenged and, and sort of advancing through numerous and public, um, very large public climate strikes and, and, and large outcries, particularly in the last year and rising. But yet there's tremendous discord on among international leaders. Climate change is something we need to address, but it's also not just an environmental issue. It's about international development and security, certainly among other things. Um, I was marked recently by noting some of the statistics that have been shared by organizations working in the international humanitarian space with the Red Cross, for example, saying that 108 million people are affected by climate-related humanitarian emergencies and were in, in 2018. You know, there are estimates that, that point to half a billion people being displaced from their homes by 2050 by climate change. And that, frankly, is just the tip of the iceberg. I think geopolitical and security implications of climate change are huge. You know, increased mass migration related to that, resource scarcity and conflict. I mean, I could go on. I don't really want to, per se, uh, go through the litany of challenges that we are all facing. But we're coming off what some have been calling a really challenging or maybe even disastrous COP last year with a lack of commitments that have been made. And I want to just ask you generally, you know, where, where are you seeing progress in your work? And as you're seeking to, you know, get significant change to happen in terms of uh, climate commitments around the world, you know, what are your priorities? You know, where are you seeing progress? How are you feeling today um, as we look at this year ahead? Can I maybe start with, uh, with Catherine? I know that you were at COP uh, last year. I was. Yeah, so you're absolutely right that climate change is uh, not by any means a siloed issue. We know that climate change is both a symptom of and something that exacerbates a whole variety of social ills, uh, including inequality, uh, injustice, um, 
And so we see that climate change is the result of an economic system that perpetuates those inequalities and injustices. And it also amplifies those inequalities and injustices. And so if we're going to have a conversation about human rights, about entering into and co-creating a society that cares more for more people, um, addressing climate change is an absolutely essential element of that. You were talking, Nick, about the displacement uh, that we might see in 2050 of people because of the impacts of climate change. But in fact, we're already seeing that kind of displacement. We know we're in the midst of the worst refugee crisis that the world has seen since the early 20th century and the world wars in 2017. 18 disasters alone displaced 18.8 million people worldwide in 135 countries. 8.6 million of them were displaced because of floods, 7.5 because of storms. And we know those floods and storms are only getting worse because of climate change. So I think about um, and work on this issue uh, from the lens of climate justice, of thinking about how this is an action uh, that revolves around us caring for each other, us caring for the home that we share, us caring for the other species that share this home with us. And um, and what gives me hope, what, what compels a lot of my uh, work is this growing feeling that um, I'm not the only one and my colleagues are not the only ones who are building community around this issue. So in 2019, I think we've seen a new era of climate action uh, arise where, you know, exponentially more people are not only getting into the streets, but they're getting into each other's homes. You know, they're, they're building community and relationships around their concern over the climate crisis and their desire to do something about it. I had the privilege of being in New York for the September climate strike on the 21st there. And then I was in Montreal for the September 27th climate strike um, where there were 500,000 people in the streets of Montreal, uh, 400,000 in New York. And during those demonstrations, I was thinking about the last biggest climate strikes that I'd been in or climate demonstrations that I'd been in. Um, which was in 2015 in Quebec City, where there were 25,000 people on the streets. And we thought that that was incredible, that 25,000 people would come out for a climate in 2015. And just four years later, that number had grown to, to half a million. Um, so we know there is an, a vastly accelerated amount of public awareness, of public concern over the issues of climate change globally. The demands being made on government are clearer and more urgent than ever. The science is clearer and more urgent than ever. And yet, unfortunately, we continue to see a lot of reluctance from those political decision makers. And, and nowhere was that more obvious than at the annual UN climate negotiations at COP25 in Madrid this year, or this past year, at the very end of 2019. Uh, it was disastrous. I think um, all of the COP lifers that I know who've been going to these things for 25 years agreed that it was, if not the worst, at least the second worst COP in history after Copenhagen, maybe. Um, and that's because the the distance between the decision makers in those negotiations and the opinions of the nation states that they represented were 
so far away from the kind of passion and demands that we've been hearing from people demonstrating for climate justice around the world. And that, um, you know, the distance between those things was so jarring. Um, Mm. And we can, I think, dig into why that is. I think it has a lot to do with the vested interests of the fossil fuel industry, in all honesty. Um, and I'm sure Stephen has some ideas about uh, about those that distance as well. Perhaps before we get to sort of what are some of the reasons for that disconnect between policy and sort of uh, evolving public discourse, maybe I can ask Steve: Are you are you feeling the same sense of winds of change and ambition in the public uh, discourse? Is that, is that are you finding that same echo? Oh, I, I think it's it's um, just amazing to see the amount of people, young people, rising in the streets all around the world. When we think of uh, of the movement that Greta started just over a year and a half ago as one solitary person sitting outside her parliament, to now having millions of people around the globe uh, doing the same thing on a weekly basis, it tells you that there's something out there that people are, are, are finally waking up to and, and realizing um, that what we've been doing so far simply isn't working. And um, what's what's beautiful about it, uh, we'll get to in a minute, what's tragic about it is, is that for 25 years already, we've had people from island states uh, telling us about rising sea levels. We have our own Inuit here in the Canadian North uh, who have been talking about changing ice flows, um, about changing currents, flipping over walrus boats, about inability to uh, track and and find game. Um, So we've known about uh, this issue, but we haven't had the the ability to listen, to hear. And I think what what the youth movement is doing to us is it's speaking right to our values. How can, how can parents uh, be having these conversations with their children and remain unmoved? And then I think it's not only parents, it's community leaders, it's municipal leaders, corporate leaders, and right up to, uh, to world leaders um, that you and both Catherine have spoken to, whose um, inability to, to show the courage and determination to step up to the scale of this issue. And I think that's one of the things that's uh, changed this past year when we received the report from uh, the International Panel on Climate Change, which basically told us that our goals of living to a 1.5 degree warming, which which would mean very disrupted lives, um, great suffering in many places, uh, but where collectively, if we put all of our efforts to it, we would be able to adapt many areas of the world. Some would, would still be in, in too much calamity, the kind of things you, you open the, uh, the meeting with here. But we're on our way to two and three degrees, which, which seems almost imaginable. And that's where uh, we have the real ability and difference to act now. And that, that half degree doesn't sound like a lot to, to people. I think it's hard for them to understand what that means. Uh, but that really means tens of millions of people, additional people worldwide, living extended 10-day heat waves, having coastal flooding and being displaced, leading to severe food insecurity where plants can't even germinate. Mm-hmm. And, and really large numbers of internally displaced, more than, than internationally displaced. And uh, the time is now to be able to stand up to, to such uh, a crisis. And that's where we need the kind of moral and courageous leadership to go into the unknown. Um, you could label it one of two ways. It has been labeled as 
as the moonshot to try to get to, and that really hasn't worked. And it's now that we're really in in uh, the next world war, that collectively we have to fight together. I'm hearing from both of you that we not only have the evidence of the change that we need to make, we also are starting to have you know favorable preconditions for the policy changes that we need, a, a public um, sort of recognition of the need to act. But the policy gap is still there. This last sort of COP was, was disastrous. The commitments were not made. You know, wh- how do we start to bridge that policy gap? And, you know, you, you've given some indications there. Um, is there anything else that we can do? Because there seems to be such a, such a disconnect between, you know, what we know needs to be done and what political leaders, whether in Canada or overseas, are willing to make. But, and I think that's where um, there's research out there that shows that if 3.5% of the population is taking action on a, on a repetitive basis, that does the kind of thing that leads to uh, courageous leadership or even uh, regime change in a peaceful way. But what's not happening is enough voices are not reaching. Uh, kids don't vote. And we still have people standing in the way. And we still have a lot of communities that, that are worried about uh, their own livelihoods today rather than tomorrow. And uh, for the development and the humanitarian communities, it's only very recently that we're starting to link our work to the scale of this issue. And Catherine pointed out uh, the displacement today when you said about tomorrow's displacement numbers. But yet most development humanitarians don't talk about the displacement from Latin America in climate terms. They talk about that, that displacement being caused by people fleeing gang violence. But when you talk to those people the majority have left their smallholder farms because they couldn't make a living anymore due to climate change and then went to the city and then moved on. We have the same story in the, in the Syrian conflict where a million people left their, their uh, farms and, and went into the cities and were not taken care of. And then that led to the revolt. So it's really time that humanitarians and development actors um, are telling their public about the links between the work. We have people donating and going all around the world to solve these problems and to work together with communities, but we're not labeling the problem as what it is. And it needs to come still from more sectors. That's why the the medical community is so important, but now the development humanitarian community. It's interesting what you say, because the international development community has been looking at adaptation and mitigation for a long time and, you know, has developed certainly in some um, subsectors of the international development field, real expertise around adaptation you know, that is required at the field level. I, I worked at, uh, I worked with Care Canada I, about 15 years ago, and they had all kinds of programs around adaptation mitigation. But if you look at the channels of what we tell our donors, those, those channels uh, rightly have focused on justice and on um, educating women and girls. And But that's been a very large part of the SDG that it's focused on. And we have done so without focusing enough attention on on climate and on the, the how that is erasing all of those development goals. Just just one big storm in Haiti took out 10 years of development work. So our SDGs, we have so many of them and we have to move them all forward, but they're actually all predicated on a pyramid of having a healthy environment underneath at the base. Otherwise, all of the good that we do, other than education, which people can stay with and keep for life and um, disappears. And we really have to focus on augmenting uh, our overall ODA, as we know. I mean, we've, we're disastrously low now, down around 0.25%, nowhere close to the 0.7%. We talked recently at, at some conferences about the need to double 
ODA over the next 10 years and, and make 50 cents of every dollar go towards building resiliency in communities, um, helping uh, technology transfer and getting those communities on renewable energy and extending green finance both for disaster recovery so uh, those communities can recover from storms but also green bonds so they can invest in tomorrow's energy today. We're, we're still investing through um, international development banks and even through our own export and development corporation in Canada. We're still funding new fossil fuel and heavy CO2 projects. So we have to cut off the taps. We have to increase the funding that mm -hmm. we're putting out to our fair share. And uh, to the COP question, yes, it was disastrous, but uh, we, we almost got out of a disaster because one of the big areas uh, that we need to rely on to help us is nature and nature-based solutions. But the last time we tried this under Kyoto, we made a carbon market that ended up pushing Indigenous peoples off the land, that ended up getting really um, grabbed by big corporations and, um, and legal firms and not assisting communities. So it actually aggravated injustice. And we have to make sure that this new time around, uh, when we're building a new market, that this market is really looking at ensuring adaptation, ensuring healthy communities, and, uh, and respecting Indigenous and human rights. Catherine, you, you live in many respects of your work at the intersections of uh, international development and climate change. Um, as we're leading into sort of the next COP, as we're looking for Canada to step up in terms of its climate finance commitments, where do you see the intersections with the international development community? How can we be supporting one another as we sort of seek our, our shared ambitions for Canada's engagement in the world? Yeah, that's a great question. I think a large part of the value in working with the international development community uh, to move climate action forward in Canada comes from the international development community's ability to communicate the urgent need for Canadian leadership on climate change globally and to communicate the kind of moral, uh, the moral argument for why it is absolutely necessary for Canada to drive its emissions down aggressively here at home while supporting other countries in doing the same and adapting to the impacts of climate change. So we've talked about what that looks like in terms of Canada's climate finance assistance, uh, but we haven't really talked about what that looks like in terms of Canada's own climate policies. And something that gets thrown at me a lot is, you know, Canada can't really make a difference globally. Why would we want to be aggressive on climate policies when, you know, the United States, for instance, is talking about pulling out of the Paris Agreement? And I think it's easy for Canadians to not have the perspective of what Canada's presence in the global landscape of climate action means. So we're at this point one of few liberal democracies remaining that is willing to expend political capital defending climate action globally. Even though Canada has a long way to go meeting its own climate commitments and we have our work cut out for us having some sticky conversations in the Canadian context about how to balance our need to take climate action with our need to diversify our economy. 
Um, globally, we really champion climate action by doing things like creating the Powering Pass Coal Alliance and creating with the EU and China the Ministerial and Climate Action. And those kinds of multilateral convenings that Canada champions are, are really important spaces for international climate leadership. Beyond that, when we take action here at home, we are able to say to others, you know, we're doing our bit, now you have to do yours, and we can model some interesting things to the rest of the world. So we implemented a pan-Canadian carbon price in 2019, which is one of the only examples that the world now has of what carbon pricing can look like in a federated state. I mean, carbon pricing has become a norm globally with 76 jurisdictions around the world doing it. But Canada is unique in that we you know, have provinces and territories that are developing individual approaches to carbon pricing, and we're figuring out how to make that work on a national level. So those kinds of examples are important to the rest of the world. And I think a really important example that will eventually provide to the world is what it looks like for a country that has an oil and gas sector to think meaningfully about transitioning away from fossil fuel dependence over the next decade or so. It seems obvious that we... And on this case, Canada needs to connect its domestic engagements and commitments with its international engagements. Maybe just to close out the conversation, can I can I ask you both to share with us sort of what you're looking for this year um, in your work? What are you really hoping to see with respect to change on the climate change front and commitments um, and and Canada's contributions to advancing progress on this file? So I, I, I'm really looking, there are a couple things that I'm really looking forward to. First of all, this is 2020. It's the big year of increasing ambition under the Paris Agreement. It's the year that that international treaty invites all of the parties back to the table to tell the world how they're going to do better. Canada's been making climate commitments since the early 90s, and we have missed so far every single target we've set. So the question for us in 2020 is how are we going to make the legislative and institutional changes necessary to ensure that we never miss another target? And this is what we at Climate Action Network Canada call climate accountability. Um, and we've recommended a suite of changes that can happen and can be enshrined in Canadian legislation that will keep us on track to our climate goals, that will assess progress over time, that will help us course correct when policies aren't performing as we thought they would. And the good news is in the 2019 election, Canada's first climate election, where over 60% of voters cast their ballots for parties promising more ambition on climate change. The Liberals promised climate legislation. And so we're expecting to see that in 2020 and for that to be aligned with our uh, with the increase of our Paris pledge so that we have this combined increase in ambition and increase in accountability. And that's, I think, a big part of the agenda for 2020 in Canada. Well, it is, it is definitely a, a crucial year uh, to build the support and to um, hold our elected officials to account so that the meetings of COP26 will achieve what they are intended to do. That being said, that will still only be the starting point. And I fear that so long as uh, we have this narrative that we can have a perfect economy and a perfect environment, 
and that we make our decisions on an economic basis first and then try to administer to protection of the environment, uh, that, uh, that we will go slower and more incrementally than, than we could otherwise. And so I think it's absolutely important the work that, uh, that Climate Action Network and other partners are doing is, is, uh, is fundamental to ensuring that, that Canada shows up and does the right thing. Um, we have many partners around the world doing the same thing. That said, we've sort of, uh, at the Suzuki Foundation, lost our belief that this is all going to come together. Now, it doesn't mean that we're not going to work with every muscle to get there, but we want to have a backup plan. And we take great comfort from this recent case in the Netherlands, which was called Urgenda versus uh, the Netherlands. And in, in uh, brief, it was a group of citizens who got together and sued their government and the courts agreed that, in fact, climate change not only presented uh, an imminent danger, but that they had obligation in line with uh, their human rights obligations uh, to ensure that they could put the conditions for a healthy life at the disposal of their citizens. And the courts then mandated that the government had to reduce by 25% more over their existing targets on greenhouse gas reduction over a five-year period. And the whole appeal process took a few years, but that's now been reconfirmed. And so um, we've, uh, along with some partners in Canada, taken a similar approach in, in bringing together 15 of these young, amazing climate leaders from all across the country uh, and launching a suit against uh, the government for not living up to protecting the life, liberty and security of the person and equality under the law of these young people who are going to suffer the most. And these young people are, are representing all young people and, in fact, even future generations. And our hope is that um, as the political process unfolds, uh, we'll also have a legal process unfolding whereby uh, the courts would then set a new ceiling rather than a floor. We often have our, our government say that they can only go so far, they can only do what business and the population are ready to uh, accept, rather than to take up the courage and to put out a plan along with a vision for how we're bringing everyone along. And as a result, we seem to fall short of what science demands. And in this case, then, we could have the courts set what that new ceiling is, impose on all future governments that they will have to put in climate measures to the degree that science says and then it would no longer be a political football, no longer a partisan issue. It wouldn't matter who's in power. They would have to live up to um, uh, what's mandated by the court. And so that's one of the other things that we're excited by is, is to see courts in, in some jurisdictions taking their responsibility to protect the populations. It's really interesting to hear you both talk about accountability because we need leadership on this file. And you're really raising both the profile of, of accountability to keep our leaders um, to account on on the commitments that get made, you know, I think there's no That's denying right. there's no denying that that this is is an interesting avenue and, and certainly one we haven't talked a lot about. I think that also climate change is just defining the challenge of our time, and increasingly, I'm I'm hopeful that the international development community sees the contribution that it can play in this space. From my own perspective, and hearing you both speak, I'm really struck by the need for us to align our two communities to be working in the same direction, rowing in the same direction. I see some tremendous opportunity here with a sense that our country has been underperforming on the international stage um, in respects that you have laid out. But I would add to that around, you know, our RODA 
and our lack of investment in that space. And as our sector mobilizes to make a strong case for that, the importance for us to align with our uh, global climate change commitments uh, to deliver progress that can tick many boxes that all need to be ticked at the same time. I really want to thank you for both joining us today. We've covered so much ground. Thank you for being with us, both of you, um, Catherine and Stephen. Thanks again for having us. Yeah, thanks so much, uh, Nick, and to the CCIC. Thank you for joining us for the special edition of Development Unplugged, produced by the Canadian Council for International Cooperation with the support of Crestview Strategy.